0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. It may surprise you to know that I wasn't born a Presbyterian. I wasn't always what you see before you now. In fact, 20 years ago, I wasn't a Presbyterian minister. I was a Baptist deacon. And as such, often was called upon to answer questions about baptism in a Baptist way, which I did my best to do. I remember having to explain to people things as basic as why they needed to be baptized. Because, of course, whenever we did baptisms, we were always a great pains to emphasize the fact that baptism accomplished nothing. That baptism doesn't save you, that it's just symbolism. We didn't call it empty symbolism because that wouldn't have sounded right, but that is what we meant when we said symbolism. One of the consequences of this, though, was that it wasn't clear to people why they needed to be baptized in the first place. Maybe in the ancient world, when people Felt highly about symbolism and signs and that sort of thing. It made sense. But Americans aren't that way. We don't have a lot of patience for symbolism. Right? We like things to be concrete, to be practical. We like there to be good reasons for doing something. Jesus gives a reason, a rationale for baptism in the passage that we've just read that uh, he wants John to baptize him because it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And this is. The argument that we would make something along the lines of, no, it doesn't, you know, do anything, but it's important to go through the motions. It's important to kind of do this, what we would have called first act of obedience that Jesus modeled for us. The idea being that as a Christian, you're called to a life of obedience. And in order to kind of get that ball rolling, get used to what it's like to have to obey we came up with this weird water ritual that you have to go through to kind of accustom yourself to strange and sacrificial obedience. I'm exaggerating a little bit. I certainly would have said these things with much greater sincerity 20 years ago than I can say them right now. But I do want to acknowledge there is a bit of a challenge. There is a bit of a question here that this passage raises having to do with the purpose, the meaning of baptism. What does Jesus' baptism mean for him? Why does he go through with this? What does it mean to say, let's do this to fulfill all righteousness? And what does Jesus' baptism, and indeed our own baptism, mean for us? These are all questions, I think, that our text helps us to explore a little bit more. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to understand just two things, really simple. First, what Jesus' baptism meant to Jesus, and then secondly, what this baptism means for us. Let's think first of all about Jesus and and the explanation that Jesus gives to John the Baptist to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean exactly? Well, it means more than it may sound like. When Jesus says to fulfill all righteousness, he means something more than just let's keep all the rules or let's tick off all the boxes or let's do this for a appearances' sake so that people following my example will do what I want them to do. So we need some context to understand the baptism of Jesus. And fortunately, John has already told us some things about baptism in the first part of chapter 3 that we would do well to remember now. You know, the way the text is divided and even the sermons are divided, it's easy to think That our introduction to John and his ministry and his denunciation of the hypocrites, all of the stuff we looked at two weeks ago, that that happened. And then a whole lot later, Jesus came along and and his baptism took place. And these are two sort of discrete incidents. But Matthew puts them together. Matthew presents them to us as a sort of a, a coherent whole. And so what John tells us about baptism should help us understand how to think about the baptism of Jesus. In the first 12 verses of this chapter, John has already told us that his baptism has a significance, a purpose. He baptizes with water, he says, and he does it for repentance. People are confessing their sins, they're turning away from their sin, and they're receiving this sign of baptism, which obviously is a kind of washing. When you see a baptism, you can think of the washing away of sin, of iniquity. So the symbolism seems very clear. That's one thing John tells us about baptism, that his baptism is for repentance. But there's something else he tells us in the same breath, that there is a better baptism that's coming. And he says, my baptism is with water for repentance, but the one who's coming after me is mightier than me, and he will baptize you in a better way than I can. He will baptize you with the Spirit and fire. He says, there's a better, fuller baptism that's on the horizon. When you think about those things, the first thing presents a challenge to us. The whole purpose of the baptism of John is connected to the idea of repentance, turning away from your sins. But if that's true, why would Jesus need to be baptized? Because Jesus is righteous. Already, Jesus doesn't need to turn away from his sin because he hasn't committed Any sin, he has no need to repent, no need to be washed clean. This isn't just an academic question. John the Baptist himself raises an objection. When John sees Jesus coming for baptism, he wants to talk him out of it. He's like, this is not actually the way this should work. One of my first seminary classes was on the doctrine of salvation. I had two choices Two classes I could sign up for, Doctrine of Salvation with Dr. McWilliams. That was all about like the five points of Calvinism, good juicy soteriology. And the other one was Old Testament with Edmund Clowney, who I'd never heard of before at that time. Because remember, I'm a Baptist deacon. What do I know about Reformed theology? I didn't know that Dr. Clowney had been the president of Westminster Seminary. I didn't know that he'd written so many incredible books about finding Christ in the Old Testament. So I did what a lot of Baptists like me would do if they had to choose between the five points of Calvinism and the Old Testament. I chose the interesting one. I did Doctrine of Salvation. I did not sign up for Old Testament. I was a New Testament Christian. What did I need with that stuff? The funny thing was, I would sit in the back row of my salvation class with my buddy, who was a Baptist youth pastor, and we would kind of make jokes to ourselves and that sort of thing. We were not very Presbyterian. And a little old guy would come in the back of the room, and he would sit next to us to kind of sit in on class. I didn't know who he was, but the funny thing is, whenever this guy sat down on the back row, the teacher got nervous. And as he was giving his lecture, like his voice would get a little quavery, and, and he would get super precise, and would kind of lose his, his place a little bit. And I was like, I don't know what's going on. I had no idea that this nice little old guy was Dr. Clowney, who was teaching the incredible class on Old Testament history, and had been a professor to my professor. Understandably, whenever Dr. Clowney came in, what my professor would have preferred to do is say, here, you take the lead. Here, you teach the class. And I imagine John the Baptist must have felt something similar, because he was a sinner, Right? He was proclaiming a message of repentance that applied to him as well. And now, the people are coming to be baptized, and some of them are hypocrites, and he denounces those people. He says, what are you doing here? You need to repent truly. You need to show works that are worthy of repentance. And then Jesus comes. And John's like, wait a second. You've come to me for baptism? I need to be baptized by you. Now, the objection that John is making here is not a theological one. Like he's not saying, but Jesus, you are the sinless one. And this, I don't know if you heard me, but this is a baptism for repentance. So this doesn't apply to you. It's something more uh, visceral than that, something more basic. It has to do with John's sense of his own unworthiness. This is something like Peter. When Jesus says, I'm going to wash your feet, Peter gives a response. It's not theological. It's visceral. It's like, No, you're not. No way in the world because you're up here and I'm down here. This can't happen. Right? So that's the basis. You are mightier than me. You are the one who is mightier. You have no need of this. How can I give this to you? And it's in that context that Jesus says, let it be so for now in order to fulfill all righteousness. Now, These are the first words Jesus speaks in Matthew's Gospel. As we said before, Jesus is almost like not even a character in the story so far. We've seen baby Jesus, sort of a a glancing glimpse of Jesus, but now he enters on the stage, as it were, and the first line that he speaks are these words about the need to fulfill all righteousness. If you think about it that way, and the significance of this moment where Jesus presents himself, I don't think it's possible that what Jesus means when he says, to fulfill all righteousness, is something like, oh, John, you're right, I don't really need this, and it's not really appropriate for you to give it to me, but I do want to set a good example for everybody else, so let's just go through the motions. Let's just dot every I and cross every T so that people will know why they should get baptized. What he's saying has got to be more than that. Like, There's got to be a necessity for Jesus to receive this sign of baptism, something meaningful. There is. And again, it's the prophets who give us the context. Two prophets in particular help us understand what this baptism actually means. The first of those prophets is John the Baptist himself, who we called last time the last of the Old Testament prophets. It's that second thing that he told us when he said there's a better baptism coming. The one who is coming who's mightier than me will baptize you with spirit and fire. So spirit, Holy Spirit. Fire. Think of fire this way. Some people, when they see that word fire, they think judgment. But I think probably what John is getting at here is not that. It's more to do with presence. Think of the the bush that burned but was not consumed where God reveals himself to Moses. Think of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 quoting Deuteronomy 4 which says that our God is a consuming fire. So, The Holy Spirit coming down, the presence, the divine presence of God, these will accompany this new and greater baptism. So when does this new baptism come? Good question. Well, we'll recognize it because we'll see these these manifestations, these signs. We should see something indicating the presence of the Holy Spirit. We should see some kind of divine presence and we get it immediately. We get it immediately in Jesus' baptism. When Jesus is baptized, we get the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. When Jesus is baptized, we get the divine presence as the heavens are opened, and a divine voice declares the satisfaction of the Father in the Son. So we have these signs here which suggest to us that the baptism of Jesus is not just another one of John's baptisms. That the baptism of Jesus is different from what went before and is the beginning of something new. This fullness that has been promised is now being manifested. Right and now a new baptism, a richer, fuller baptism is being inaugurated. And our Lord Jesus, as the first fruits, is the first one to receive this Holy Spirit sign. There's a second prophet who speaks to the significance and the meaning of Jesus' baptism. You won't be surprised to learn it is the prophet Isaiah, who so often speaks to messianic themes. But we get this, interestingly, from Jesus himself. Because if you switch over to Luke's gospel, um, what's about to happen, spoiler alert, in the next chapter of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. That's Matthew chapter 4. The same thing happens in Luke chapter 4. And then after the temptation in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is beginning his ministry. And At the start of his ministry, he goes to the synagogue in Nazareth. He opens up a scroll seemingly at random, and he reads from Isaiah 66, the first two verses that you find there. And once he's read these words from the scroll, he says to the people there, This prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. Like, I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. Well, here's what he reads from the scroll. This is Isaiah 66. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, fresh off of his baptism and his temptation, this is the text with which he begins this ministry of fulfillment. And there's some interesting words that are used here, words of anointing. Now think about the way the Bible talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit. How is the spirit applied? What verb do we use to talk about the application of the Spirit, well, oftentimes, when the spirit is referred to, we talk of the spirit being poured. The pouring out of the spirit is the way the Bible will speak of that pouring out the same way that oil is poured out in an anointing. That idea of anointing we think of of Samuel, for example, anointing David to be the king that God has chosen he would have taken oil and he would have poured it out on his forehead to mark him, to anoint him as the one who is set apart. And of course, we know the meaning of the word Messiah is anointed one. The one who is the Messiah is the one who has been anointed as king. So here, you should be thinking, huh, you keep making this gesture with your hand when you do anointing, and it's a gesture similar to what you do when you baptize. And it is, by design. In fact, in the ancient church, some baptismal rituals even included anointing as part of the sort of elaborate process. When we think about the way we administer baptism, it's good to think in your mind of the way an anointing, setting apart, would have taken place. Because, of course, the, the things pictured... the sacraments are are complex, not only the washing away, but also the setting apart, the marking as distinct and special and holy. That too is pictured in baptism. When Jesus reads from the scroll and he says today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he means the message that he was commissioned to proclaim with the Spirit's power at his baptism has now been declared to them. So at Jesus' baptism, we see a A bestowal of the Spirit upon him, and we see a commissioning to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. These things together are are part of the meaning of Jesus' baptism. Say, what does Jesus' baptism mean to him? Well, this is how we answer that question Jesus is the first fruits. Right? He's the first of this new humanity, and he received this sign as the first of us. His baptism opens the way for us. He might consecrate baptism in his own body that we might have it in common with him, as Calvin says. So it's true that what Jesus is doing here is meant to be an example for us, a picture for us, but not just to teach us the importance of obedience, even when we don't understand To show us the way. That as Christ, too, leading the way into the kingdom, receives this sign of the kingdom promises, that we, too, as we enter into the kingdom, receive that same sign, are marked with his name, are his people. Jesus was our head, our representative, and so it was right for him to be the first to receive this sign that marks us all. Because in that sign, in our baptism, we have a picture of our union with him. Our baptism calls us to be united to him. The sign also pictures the shed blood of Christ washing away our sin. And although Jesus has no sin that needs to be washed away, it is his blood that does the washing. And it's appropriate then for him to receive the sign and in the receiving of the sign, to fill it with meaning. In order to understand what Jesus' baptism means to him, Jesus' baptism is what makes your baptism mean something. It is because he was baptized that when you are baptized, it means something. Because he was the one whose sacrifice would fill the sign with its significance. So yes, he was baptized for our sake, but not just to model obedience to us, but to proclaim to us the good news in the form of his body. He physically receives this sign that we too participate in. Now if you've been in our adult Sunday school class, there's another thing here that you should notice, and it has to do with what we read in the Westminster Confession, Chapter 8, Section 3 where the Confession talks about the human nature of Jesus. And it says that in his human nature, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. We often think of the great works that Jesus performed as being manifestations of his divine nature. But the Confession says that Jesus' humanity abounded in the Spirit beyond all measure, which models for us something like what humanity, when it's perfected, should look like. That human beings are meant to be indwelled by the Spirit in this way. But if you ask yourself, when did this happen? When did Jesus get this, this pouring out of the Spirit? Well, we see it happening here at his baptism. This is where we see his human nature being anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. Finally, one last thing. And here I'm going to admit to you that I'm being speculative. You won't necessarily find this in every commentary. This is me connecting the dots. So what I'm about to say, take it for what it's worth. Maybe maybe this is just me seeing things that aren't there, but uh, I don't think so. When you picture the scene, when you imagine John pouring out that water of baptism, that water of anointing on the head. Of King Jesus, after he's just proclaimed the coming of the kingdom and the coming of the King, you see that moment, and you ask yourself, if I defocus my eyes a little bit, what does that look like? What it looks like is a coronation, because this is what we do when we crown kings. Kings come before the the, the public, right? The 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 prophet or the archbishop or whoever goes through this ritual of anointing and a setting apart and a placing upon the head of the crown. And then even after that's done, a declaration. Like there he is, a declaration of the greatness of the king. God save the king. Something like that is happening here. A king has been proclaimed. A king has arrived. A prophet has given him this sign that looks like anointing, a setting apart for a kingdom ministry. And now... Once that's been accomplished, not only does the Holy Spirit descend in the form of a dove, but the voice of the Father from heaven itself declares His satisfaction. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Worship Him. That declaration seems to me like a coronation. The King whose coming was announced is now here. And He's anointed and invested with power And then this divine declaration comes and presents him to the world so that he can do the work of the kingdom that he has been called to. That at least scratches the surface of what Jesus' baptism meant to him and why it was significant, what it meant to fulfill all righteousness, to bring the promises of God to fullness, fulfill a sense of fullness, to himself embody perfect righteousness, So that he might bring us through union with him into that righteousness. Because if you are in union with Christ, then God is well pleased with you. The voice from heaven declares, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And If you ask yourself, what emotion is that an expression of? Like what feeling, if a human being were to say something like that, if if a human father said that about his son, what emotion would he be expressing? Well, it would be an emotion of delight, you know, pride. Well done, this is my son, I'm proud of him, I'm well pleased with him, I take delight in how he's turned out. Look at him, that's my boy, that kind of thing, right? So it's an expression of delight and pleasure. And chronologically, it comes at an interesting place. This is not the end of Jesus' ministry when his work is accomplished. This is the beginning. This is how it starts. So file that away. The declaration of God's delight in the Son, his pleasure, his satisfaction comes, not after the work is done, but at the outset. The ministry of Jesus and the work of Jesus begins with a declaration of pleasure and satisfaction. And that's an example for us as well, because God's words of satisfaction in us come before the life of obedience, not afterwards. Now obviously in these words, there's more going on there. there. There's a declaration here of authority. If you say, this is my son, and I am the God who made all things, then you are investing that son with authority. You are saying you are well pleased with him. You are saying he and I... We're like this, whatever he says, I say. So clearly, authority is being bestowed. The psalmist in Psalm 2 says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is a kind of echo or fulfillment of that prophecy as well. But setting that aside for a moment, just imagine what it would feel like to hear those words declared by the Father about you. This is my son. This is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. you imagine hearing those words from God himself? What would you feel? Well, delight, happiness, yeah. But above all, rest. Because I don't know about you, but but me... Like, I worry that that's not how he feels when he looks at me. Like, I worry that what he sees when he looks at me is what I have left undone, or worse, what I've done. That he looks upon me and he is not well pleased. That he looks upon me and he's much worse than that. He's actually angry. And I can find myself worried about what I need to be doing in order to make him more pleased with me than he is. There are a lot of ways, I hope, in which you are nothing like me, but I suspect this is one of the ways that we're alike. That you carry the idea of the pleasure of God as a sort of burden. The idea of God's delight is this unattainable treasure that you hope maybe one day that will be the case. But it is hard to believe that he can look upon you that way now. It is hard to believe That God could look upon you now and say, this is my son, this is my daughter with whom I am well pleased, with whom I am satisfied. And if you heard those words and could believe them, imagine the rest that you would feel, like the tension draining from your body, that you can lay that burden down, that you don't have to wake up another day remembering what you did the day before and how Far short you fell in what you claim to be. Those words of delight would bring rest to us. I am well pleased with you. When I look upon you, I am satisfied. You give me pleasure. To hear those words from the Father, you are my beloved. To hear those words from the Father, what price would you pay? Like what sacrifice would you make? What would you give up to get that seal of approval? on your life. No more guilt, no more shame, no more feeling of inadequacy, no more striving, no more competing with all the righteous people around you, no more working and falling short. To hear that declaration, some of us dream of hearing it at the end of our lives. Some of us live lives in the hope that one day we will hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Which is great. But imagine hearing them before the work begins. Imagine hearing them before you've lifted a finger. That's what's happening here. That's the kind of delight that the Father is expressing in the Son. Satisfaction comes before the work. Satisfaction comes before the work. And if Jesus' baptism means that for him, it means that for us as well. The baptism of Jesus is an invitation to us into the delight of the Father. If you are united to Jesus by faith, then the Father delights in you as well. Not, not that he will delight in you. He does delight in you. Not that he will be well pleased. Hopefully, hopefully. If you do this thing right, but that he is well pleased with you. He is not waiting to see how you do, because in Christ it is already done. That's the invitation of the baptism of Christ, because that is the invitation of the gospel. The good news that that baptism proclaims. If the Father is satisfied with Jesus, then the Father is satisfied with Jesus' people too. If you are Jesus' people, the Father is satisfied and well-pleased with you. In Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul writes that in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. The Beloved that Paul is referring to is the same one the Father is referring to here. It's Jesus. He has blessed us in Jesus, in Christ. That if we are united to Christ in faith, those blessings, that promise, that satisfaction belongs to us. In other words, the good news of the Gospel that Jesus proclaims. Jesus, from the beginning, acknowledges God... Had a plan. That God had a plan, that He sent His Son into the world in order to accomplish the work of that plan, and the goal of it was to unite you to His beloved. That all of this was done, as Paul says, in love. In love, He predestined us for adoption. In love, He has blessed us in the beloved. This is God's plan to be united to us. In love, and out of love, from his love. In the first part of this chapter, as we saw the ministry of John the Baptist, you might think we got, let's say, the the first part of the gospel. There's a one-two punch going on here. Because John brings a message of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Now that is the message Jesus too will proclaim in his ministry as well. So John here is not giving an obsolete message. This is the gospel message that John is proclaiming. Repent of your sins, for the kingdom is at hand. But what we see happening here in the baptism of Jesus, you might think of this as the result, the fulfillment of that call to repent and enter the kingdom. We have the... the The negative aspect, we repent from our sins and we are spared from the punishment. But here we get the positive. We are not only spared from the punishment, but we are built up through union in Christ so that he might delight in us and we might be what we were made to be. That is actually so much more precious and glorious to experience the love of God so much more than merely not to suffer the consequences of our sins. But all of those things are the work of Jesus. All of those things are embodied in his gospel call to be united to him. You're in union with Christ and God is satisfied with you. Thank you for listening.